This is Holy Week. There's not a question that this week has affected human history more than any other by far. Not only is Jesus the most important person, but what happened on this particular week in history changed everything. Said many times, and I hope you've come to recognize it, the vast majority of the Bible is history. It tells us what has happened here on this earth. And the part of history that the Bible focuses on more than any other is what happened during the last week of Jesus' life. John, that's Jesus' best friend, his gospel, almost half of his whole gospel is just one week of Jesus' life. The other writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, spend a large portion of their gospels telling us what happened during the last week of Jesus' life. It's very, very significant. And so since this season that we call Lent began some weeks ago, we've been focusing week by week on each day of the last week of Jesus' life. It began with the day that we're celebrating historically all around the world with palm, palm branches like this, with what we, um, of course, call um, Palm Sunday. That's the picture you see here um, to, the, to your far left here. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and he rode in on a, um, a, a donkey, being proclaimed the Messiah, but as he's being proclaimed the Messiah, the, uh, he's, he's crying because he, um, he knows what's about to happen. The people think this is a glorious day. They say, hey, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. The next day, and my slides aren't advancing, but the reason is because of me. That's Palm Sunday. The next day, which we called Melancholy Monday, is a day in which Jesus, after he had walked, had come into the, to the city of Jerusalem and, um, and people were proclaiming him king, he then the next day came into the temple and saw that the place that was his father's house had been turned into a marketplace. Can you imagine if you came into this church and out in the lobby area, there are all kinds of people selling trinkets, and not only are they selling trinkets, they're ripping you off. The prices are really, really outrageous. You came into this church and all you find here are people making political statements and people trying to solicit your, uh, your involvement in some political party. Or someone comes in here and says, hey, you're not welcome here because only people from Wyoming are allowed in this church. That's what they were doing. They were making it a, play, a body where Gentiles were not welcome. They had turned it into a place of business and a place of politics. And Jesus was fed up. So he came in and he cleaned house. He says, how dare you turn my father's house, which is supposed to be a place of worship, a place where people's attention is drawn up to God, not to their pocketbooks. And he cleaned the place up. That's called Melancholy Monday. But because he cleaned the place up, the people who now were supposed to be in charge of the, um, of the temple, they're really angry. So the next day, which we call Texty Tuesday, they come to Jesus and they say, um, how dare you do this? By what authority have you come into this place and turned over the temples, telling us that this is supposed to be your father's house? And so they start to riddle Jesus with questions. Not just questions, impossible questions. Questions like how many angels could dance on the head of a pin? Or did Adam have a navel, I guess? But they ask him even more tricky ones. Should we pay our taxes? Of course, some of the people in his society said no because they hated the Roman government to whom those taxes went. Others said, yes, you should pay your taxes. 
And so they asked Jesus, what should you do? And either way, he answered, he's in trouble. And he got out of it. Then they asked him about the resurrection. What's going to happen in the, among marriage in the resurrection, in the next life? And he gets out of that one. And finally, they just zip their lip because they can't answer him. And now Jesus turns the tables, and now he starts to give them some tests, and they fail miserably. That's Testy Tuesday. Then we called it Wacky Wednesday. Here's the picture for Wednesday. It's Jesus sitting in a doorway talking to a couple of women, which is probably what he did, because those two women would probably be Mary and Martha, and their brother is Lazarus. That's the home where Jesus stayed, just up the hill, about a 15-minute walk down into Jerusalem. We don't know what Jesus did on that day other than probably he rested at home with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But we do know what was happening in the temple. In the temple there, in the precincts of the temple, the high priests and the Sanhedrin were gathered. They had already agreed that they were going to kill Jesus and they wanted to figure out how to do it. And into their presence comes Judas, one of the disciples, and says, I'll betray him if you pay me well enough. They said, hey, we'll pay you. About one-third of a year's income is how much they gave him, 30 pieces of silver, which is a lot of money. And then Judas went out and agreed that he was going to betray him. So we call that Wacky Wednesday because disciples are supposed to be faithful to the one who disciples them, and the the, the leaders of of, of Israel should be people of justice, and they weren't. So I called it Wacky Wednesday. The next day is Maundy Thursday. Maundy simply means commandment, a new commandment I give to you. And the picture we see is the picture of the the Last Supper. This is when Jesus um, washed his disciples' feet. This is when he talks about the vine and the branches. This is when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. This is when he comforts them. And this is when he originates the Lord's Supper. And by the way, this took place on Maundy Thursday, which is the day that they started to celebrate the Passover. And tonight here at uh, First Baptist Church at 6 o'clock, we'll be having a Christ in the Passover service to which you're welcome to come, put on by the Jews for Jesus group. It shows how the Passover that the Jewish people had been celebrating for thousands of years points to Jesus. And that's what happened on Maundy Thursday. And then, of course, Maundy Thursday turned into what we now call Good Friday. Good Friday is the day in which Jesus um, was um, tried, and then he was put on the cross, and he was executed, and he was buried. All of that took place on what we call Good Friday. But let me switch attention for just a moment with you and turn to uh, this sentence or question that you've probably heard many times. Someone says, do you have good news and bad news? Which one do you want to hear first? And of course, you always say, Bad news is what most people say, but not always. Oh, here's some examples. Mrs. Jones is wild about your sermons. That's the good news. The bad news? Mrs. Jones is also wild about the gong show and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's bad news. Here's the good news. Your woman's softball team finally won a game. The bad news. They beat your men's team. The good news. This is for Shane and Becky. The youth in your church have come to your house for a surprise visit. The bad news, they're armed with toilet paper and shaving cream. Here's a lawyer. Lawyer says, I've got some good news and bad news. And the client says, well, give me the bad news first. And the lawyer says, the bad news is that your 
that DNA tests have determined that your blood was found at the crime scene. Well, what's the good news, the lawyer says. The good news is that your cholesterol is down to 130. <laughs> a pilot, this has happened to me, and I suppose it's happened to you, pilot over the intercom. I have good news and bad news. The good news is we've, we're approaching Boston now. The bad news, we aren't clear for landing for another hour. So we're going to circle the city. Or this one. The good news is that the state just raised the minimum wage. The bad news, you're fired. <laughs> you lost your job. Good Friday is the day in which the good news and the bad news came together. Almost everything that happens on Good Friday is bad. And we're going to see the level of bad is unbelievably great. Everything's bad. But what happened as a result of the bad things on Good Friday is incredibly good. So this is the baddest day in human history that turned out to be the goodest day in human history because of what it produced for us. By the way, on this coming Friday, we're going to celebrate, if you can call it that, the Good Friday service. And our focus is going to be what happened to Jesus and what he said when he was on the cross and what's the significance of that for us. And then, of course, Sunday is Easter, the great, great, great day, the centerpiece of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. But now I want to bring you to Good Friday. Good Friday would have begun, well, actually for the Jewish people, it would have begun for us on Thursday at sundown. But let's use our days. What happened on Good Friday, what we're going to look at this morning, took place from around midnight until 9 o'clock the next morning. So it's about this nine-hour period of time. Obviously, that's when most people are sleeping. Jesus was not allowed to sleep this last night of his life. In fact, what we're going to find will happen is Jesus is not only not allowed to sleep, Jesus is going to be interviewed or interrogated or tried by six different individuals or groups within this night. Now you can imagine, nothing like this is allowed to happen in any country anywhere in the world. It's totally against all principles of jurisprudence. You don't hold trials in the middle of the night. But they're not terribly concerned about following the rules of justice. Because as you know, the religious leaders have already decided that Jesus had to be killed. And so now they're going to figure out a way to pull it off. So the first thing that's going to happen on this Good Friday is that Jesus is going to be questioned by a man named Annas. Annas was one of the most wealthy people in the entire society at that time. He was the high priest emeritus. He had been a high priest for a number of years, but the Romans have, had deposed him and put into his place his son-in-law, whose name was Caiaphas. Annas now had five sons, all of whom became high priests. This is one very powerful man, probably the most powerful man in all of Israel. So what happens first is Jesus is going to be interviewed by Annas, the high priest. 
This interview probably takes place since it occurs in the middle of the night at Annas' house, which again is not the way that justice is supposed to be carried out. You don't try people in a house. You try them in a court. But who cares about justice when you've already decided the outcome? Here's what the Bible says. Then a detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So the first thing Caiaphas did is, okay, I want to hear what, well, what have you been teaching? What have you been teaching to your disciples? Caiaphas wanted to hear this. Now, Caiaphas was asking questions to which he already knew the answer. You know that if you're a teacher sometimes, people will ask you questions and you know they know the answer, but they're just trying to test you. That's what, Caiaphas, that's what Annas was doing here. Here's how Jesus responds. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues, those are open places, or at the temple where there are hundreds of people around, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. I've not been carrying out any secret meetings behind your back trying to overthrow the government. What I have said, I have said openly. I've said it in the synagogues. I've said it in the temple. I've said it where there are crowds of people. There are hundreds. In fact, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people who have heard me. Ask them. What if you're the most powerful person in the world at the time, or in that nation at the time? How would you take that? Now remember, Annas is probably an old man. Jesus is only about 30 years old. Let's see what happens. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Ooh. By the way, there's never a place in the world, I don't think, that any legitimate court allows you to beat up people who are accused. And by the way, this whole evening is going to be riddled with, with horrible miscarriages of justice. Just starting here. Jesus said, the evidence is out there everywhere. How dare you strike me when I have spoken the truth? You have no right to do that. Well, of course, you can imagine that's not going to go over very well. And so what happens then is Caiaphas is now going to send Jesus to his son-in-law, who is the acting high priest at this time. Now, what Caiaphas is going to do is Caiaphas is going to call together the Sanhedrin. That's the... That's the, um, the, the I guess you could say the legislature and the Supreme Court and the executive branch of the Jewish nation at that time, but they were still under the Roman occupation. So now Jesus is going to be sent to Caiaphas. Now remember who Caiaphas is? He's the one who in an earlier setting spoke to his fellow members of the Sanhedrin. He said this. He said, are you so stupid? And remember, he's speaking to these other very rich and powerful people. Are you so stupid that you do not realize that it is in the best interest of our country if we kill this one peasant and save our whole nation? 
That's this guy. He's already made up his mind that he's going to kill Jesus, and now he's got to find a way to do it with some measure of judicial propriety. Watch what he does. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. And remember this group, the, the, this is, the, this is the, the, the Senate of the Jewish people, consisted of 70 people plus the high priest, 71. The high priest was the presiding officer over this group. This group was composed of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, both Sadducees and Pharisees. They are the richest people and the most powerful people in the whole country. So now he gathers them together. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Now, by the way, the Sanhedrin, as I said, was composed of 71 people, but it took 23 people to have a quorum. And we're going to find out later when we look at the rest of the Gospels that he had conveniently not invited those who didn't agree with him. And that's a really good way to make a good court. You find, you, you put, you make, you invite all, the, remember, when this is taking place, this is now like 2 a.m. Everyone's sleeping. They send messengers out to the homes of the, of the members of the Sanhedrin that he knew would agree with him. And others that he knew would not agree, like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, who were siding with Jesus, they were conveniently not invited. It's a real good move. Now, did you see how they're conducting their kangaroo court here? They're not looking for evidence. They're looking for false evidence. Because they're, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. So they're looking for evidence to support killing Jesus. And they're having trouble finding it. Let's see what it says. They couldn't find any though many false witnesses came forward. Now, if you remember what it said in the Old Testament law, if a false witness came forward, they were to be executed. Perjury was a very serious crime in that society. That's what it said in the Old Testament. And these are the keepers of the Old Testament. And here, they're looking for false witnesses. False witnesses are coming forward, and they're not telling the truth. Finally, two came forward and declared, we heard him say that he was able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Did Jesus say that? Well, we know he said it, but the context and what he meant are completely different. He never referred to this great big building. He said, this is the temple. My body is the temple. Destroy this temple and it will be raised up in three days. And here, they took what Jesus said out of context and they used that as the evidence to have him killed. And kangaroo courts do this kind of thing. By the way, the perversion of justice in the history of our world is unbelievable. If you want to get rid of somebody, you can use a judicial system to twist very easily. That's what they did here. Hitler had a way of doing that in Germany as well. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Now, Jesus could easily have said, now, wait a minute. I did say 
that you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. But I was specifically saying, this is my body. And I said it in a context which made it crystal clear I was not talking about this building. Now, if I was Jesus, that's what I'd do. I'd defend myself. What does he do? Nothing. He's silent. By the way, have any of you been in a setting, and I'm sure I'm not the only one in this building, I'm sure there are probably scores of you here, where somebody is dead set against you for whatever reason, and they're bringing forth evidence that is patently false and accusing you. And have you ever noticed that if you say anything, it will be twisted against you? Your only option, if you have a half a brain or even a quarter, is you say nothing. Because no matter what Jesus had said here, he's already, he's already convicted in their minds, and that's a very common thing in our world today. The only way to maintain your integrity is to say nothing. So Jesus was silent. But now the high priest pipes in. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? So now when he, uh, he said, I, I, I force you to testify. You can't plead the fifth. You must testify. And Jesus gives another one of his crystal clear answers. It's absolutely as you say. Woo! What did he just say? I am the Messiah. That's what Christ means. And I am the Son of God. Whoa, that is really big. Those are big words. The high priest tore his clothes. You see, we live in a world today in which there are many religions, even on this very road up here in, in, Long, in, in Sheridan, that say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Uh... That's a dumb statement because the Jewish leaders sure thought he did. Tore off his clothes, which they're not supposed to do in other than situations of incredible anger. Tore his clothes. He's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think we should do? He's worthy of death, they cried. They spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? By the way, I think you're not allowed to abuse accused people in a, in a court of law. But jurisprudence doesn't have much to do with what they did to Jesus. So now they had the evidence and it was crystal clear and Jesus agreed with it. They said, you are guilty if you declare yourself to be the Messiah and you're guilty if you say you're the Son of God. And now he had said, I am absolutely guilty of that. I am the Messiah and I am the Son of God. But now Caiaphas has a big problem. You know what his problem is? His problem is, now Jesus had done something that against their law was a capital crime, but they were not allowed to execute anyone. And by the way, blasphemy is not a crime to the Roman people. Can you imagine Pilate saying, what's the charge against this guy? This guy thinks he's God. And Pilate goes, yeah, we got lots of people who think they're God. But we don't kill such people. We put them in a home somewhere. That is not a crime, to think you're God. So now Caiaphas has a problem. He wants Jesus dead, but they cannot kill him. And they can't go to the Roman government and say, hey, this guy just told us he's God. They can't do that. What are they going to do? Meanwhile, 
someone else enters the picture. Peter. You see, you remember what happened. Peter is in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. He's catching a quick, some quick Z's, catching some arrest. Jesus is arrested. Peter gets out his sword, and I think he was probably a bad shot. He was trying to hit Malchus's head and missed and got his ear. Jesus put his ear back on and said, Peter, you got it wrong. I never came out here to, to use physical violence. And then when that happened, when they arrested Jesus, Peter ran like a chicken with his head cut off, just like all the other disciples did. But remember, Peter knew that just a few hours earlier, Jesus had said to him, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter said, no, you're not. And so what Peter did, after he ran, he then circled around and went back to Caiaphas' house. Now, remember, Caiaphas is the high priest. Caiaphas lives in a gated community. Peter is a peasant. He has no standing. But, you may not know this, but Zebedee, the father of James and John, was probably an owner of a large fish business in Galilee. He had standing. He had clout. So John was able to get Peter into the house where Jesus was being tried. Now Peter's going to go hang out in there and act like he doesn't know what's going on. Let's see what happens. Peter followed them at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. By the way, that doesn't mean he swore use a swear word. That means he used oaths. By God's name, I tell you, I don't know him. So now he's including God in this. That's very serious. Immediately a rooster crowed. Now the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke that at this point, there was an eye, Peter could see Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter. Can you, can you imagine what that look looked like? I'm sure it wasn't a wink. It's probably. Peter got the point. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. The very thing he said just hours previous he would never do, he had just done. And he's a broken man. Meanwhile, inside the house, Caiaphas had gathered again around him all the members of the Sanhedrin that agreed with him. And now they had to try to decide what are we going to do with this Jesus. We're going to send him to Pilate, but we've got to figure out what charges can we bring because blasphemy won't hold up. Let's see what happens. Very early in the morning. The time? This is about 5 a.m. 
Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. The decision was they'd already decided they wanted him dead, but now they had to figure out what is the decision we're going to deliver to Pilate. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now apparently at this time in the Bible's account, Judas enters the scene. Somehow he was somewhere close. Maybe he had been brought by the, by the temple guards into Caiaphas' house, and he's watching what takes place. And as he watches what takes place, and he hears the, the discussion and the decision that Jesus is going to be handed over to be killed, Judas now realizes that he had made a big mistake. Here's what the Bible says. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. We'll come back to him in a while. And so now we know what time it is now. It's 6 a.m. You see, the Romans began their business day at 6 a.m. And we know from records that the Roman leaders like to conduct their major business early in the morning so they go out and party in the afternoon. And so Jesus is the first case on the docket this particular morning at 6 a.m. And so now the Sanhedrin leaders take Jesus bound over to a house probably nearby where Pilate, who is the governor, is residing. This is not his house. Pilate lives in Caesarea. That's on the Mediterranean Sea. But he always came to Jerusalem for Passover, not because he wanted to celebrate Passover, but because that's when riots broke out and he was responsible to keep the peace. So he was there lest any riots break out. So now the Sanhedrin takes Jesus to Pilate's house. And here's what happens next. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. Look, look at this line. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. I mean, no one laughed. That's funny. Here they had just blown every principle of Jewish prudence to condemn an innocent man, and then they're worried about defiling themselves on the Sabbath. I mean, you're idiots. I mean, this is, this is like hypocrisy times a billion. What, after you've just done the dirtiest act in the history of the world, then you worry about, well, we can't be defiled by being in a, a, the, in a place where they're Gentiles. That's what they're saying. Because the law said, or the, the, their oral law, that if you were in a Gentile building that had an open roof, like a courtyard, that was okay. But if it had a closed roof, you would be defiled if you were in the presence of Gentiles. And so what they said is, we want to celebrate the Passover, Pilate, so can you come out to us? We can't come into your building. And Pilate says, oh, okay, you dumbos. I'll do this, but I don't like it. I'm get He's getting kind of ticked, too. So now they could avoid ceremonially uncleanliness. Meanwhile, 
Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And by the way, what charges the Sanhedrin brought to Pilate was not blasphemy, but two charges. One, this man declares himself to be a king, and that is a direct threat to the emperor Tiberius. And secondly, this man claims to be the Messiah, and the Messiah is a political office, which means that he is seditious. He try, he's going to try to overthrow the Roman government. Sedition, and, 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 and uh, he's, he claims to be king. Those are the charges, and those are capital crimes. That would be like treason, which is very serious. Are you the king? Yes. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he didn't give an answer. But when Pilate asked him, are you the king? He said, yes. Then Pilate asked, asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? Jesus made no reply, not even a single, to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Why aren't you defending yourself? Now what happened next is Pilate took Jesus by himself and they had a little discussion about what is truth. Jesus says, I am truth. And Pilate says, because Jesus says, if you know the truth, you'd know that I'm an innocent man. And Pilate says, hey, come on, what is truth? But Pilate got the message. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. And so he went out with Jesus to the crowd, the Jewish crowd, and said, I've talked to the guy. He's not guilty. Well, in talking to him, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin had said to Pilate that this Jesus had taught that he was the Messiah to people from Galilee, and he is from Galilee. Pilate had an idea. You see, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew that these people were, had trumped up the charges against him. Pilate knew that if he did anything to Jesus, he was dead wrong. So Pilate wanted out. And now he's got a way to get out. Did you guys say Galilee? He said, yes, he's from Galilee. Oh, I love it. Because do you know who was in town for the Passover? King Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. So Pilate said, hey, I'm not going to make this decision. Herod has to. So now he pushes Jesus off to Herod. This is trial number five. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Because for a long time, he had been wanting to see Jesus. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. So Herod's saying, hey, hey, could you turn a little water into wine for me? I heard you do that. Maybe can you turn some hay into gold? How about that one? So he made all these suggestions, and he wanted to talk to Jesus. And Jesus, well, let's see what Jesus did. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus refused to say anything to him. So what's Herod going to do now? He's ticked, too. Everyone's ticked. Got a hot potato on his hands. He doesn't want to handle this hot potato, so what's he going to do? 
throw it back to Pilate. That's exactly what he does. And now finally you have the sixth trial of Jesus all during the night. This one took place early in the morning, probably six or seven o'clock. Here's what the Bible says. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner. We've, we know from the other Gospels he was a murderer called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed him over to them. He knew that. Now, by the way, Barabbas is an interesting character because, first of all, his name, his name is Bar Abbas. Bar is the Hebrew word which means son of. Abba means father. The, the term that they used, like in the Roman Catholic Church for a priest, is father. The term they used for a rabbi was father. It's very likely that Barabbas was the son of a high-ranking rabbi who got involved in political terrorism, who murdered somebody and was going to be killed for, for terrorism against the Roman government. Now, Pilate probably thought, this is an easy one. You got this gentle Galilean dude, and you got a notorious murderer. Come on, they're going to go for the gentle Galilean dude. Which one do you want me to give to you? I'll, I'll release you the one. He said, release Barabbas. What? But now he had made a promise. He thought they would have him release Jesus. He said, no, no, crucify him. Release to us the murderer. So he did it. Remember his words, behold the man. That's what he said. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Husbands, listen to your wife. Amen. Amen. I heard that, yes. <laughs> he didn't. And he's going to pay for it. Pilate, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. They shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. Now that is baloney. They hated Caesar. Finally, high Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And as you know what happened, he was then bound and beat up and scourged and spit on and put a crown of thorns on him. He had to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem that we know today as the Via Dolorosa or in Roman Catholic churches, churches as the Stations of the Cross. He then, of course, was brought eventually to the place where he was crucified. The Roman governor, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered around the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes and they led him away to crucify him. By 9 o'clock in the morning, he was on the cross. So all that we saw took, that we've looked at this morning took place between roughly midnight and 9 a.m. 
six groups had tried him, and he found himself now ready to be executed. As we conclude this morning, I would like to make three contrasts. The first contrast is between Caiaphas and Joseph of Arimathea. Both of these are members of the Sanhedrin. Both of these are very rich people. Both of these are very powerful people. One of them was an ultimate pragmatist who said, it's better for our nation, we can keep our position, our power, and our money if we kill this one dude so that we can keep ourselves alive. The other one was an incredibly courageous man who put his neck and his life and his money and his own tomb on the line because he came to see that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Two rich men, very, very different paths they took. The second contrast is between the soldiers who mocked Jesus and the soldier, the centurion, the, the officer who was at the cross. The soldiers were a bunch of sadists. These are both Romans. They're both Gentiles. But the sadists thought Jesus was just another prisoner and they'd crucified lots of people. They made sport of him. They beat him up. They didn't care. This guy's scum. But the centurion, who probably had seen many people crucified, as he watched the, what Jesus did and what he said and how he died, he came to realize this guy is different. He said, this is a righteous man. He is the Son of God. Same person, same background, same military, same Gentiles, but one, some of them saw Jesus as an object of sport who deserved to die. The other saw him as different than anyone he'd ever seen in his life, a truly righteous man. But the final contrast, and perhaps the most important of all, is between Judas and Peter. Both of them were disciples. Both of them had been specially chosen by Jesus. Both of them were leaders. Both of them walked with Jesus for three years. Both of them saw what Jesus had done. Both of them had, had heard what Jesus had said. Both of them had been duly warned by Jesus that they were going to sin. And both of them sinned grievously. After they sinned, both of them acknowledged their sin. Judas said, I have sinned. I have betrayed an innocent man. Peter knew he had sinned and he went out and, and wept bitterly. But then Judas went out and hung himself, and Peter went out to become one of the greatest human beings that's ever lived. What's the difference? It's not the fact that, they, that, that one acknowledged their sin and the other did not. They both said, I have sinned. They both understood that Jesus was an innocent man. That's no different. They both knew who Jesus was. One killed himself, and the other became the leader of Christianity. What's the difference? I think there's only one difference. When Judas knew that he had sinned, what did he do? He went back to the religious leaders and said, I want to give the money back. That is called religion. Religion is all about people, when we've sinned, we realize we've done something wrong against God, so we go to religious people and there's certain rights or rules or money that we pay off to undo what we have done wrong. But anyone has a real godly heart knows that you can never pay back what you've done wrong. What did Peter do? 
Peter went out and bawled his eyes out, at some point fell on his knees and said, just as I am without one plea, the only hope I have is that you're merciful and gracious. And guess what the Bible says? Jesus, after the resurrection, went and saw Peter and restored him. You see, the difference is, do you try to pay it back because you think you can undo your sin with acts of ritual or righteousness? Or do you recognize it's only by God's grace through faith that we have any hope? That's the difference. Peter took the road of grace through faith. Judas took the road of rituals and tried to pay back, and he lost his soul. May this room, Heavenly Father, please be filled full of Peters. May we be a room full of people who understand that it's only by your amazing grace alone we have any hope of eternal life with you. May we see deeply enough into our souls, Heavenly Father, that we see the, the ridiculousness of self-righteousness and the awesomeness of your grace. Please, help us to see that. We don't see it naturally. Our whole default mode is to try to pay things back. But your Holy Spirit is deeply at work making us see Help us to see. Oh, Father, may there not be a single soul in this building right now who would not see what Jesus did for us and recognize that you paid it all. Please. And then to live in light of that as we anticipate the glory of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand. By the way, if you would like to, to talk with me or pray together with me, I'd be glad to stand up here and, and, and pray with you. As you leave this place today, may I beg you to leave as a Peter. Both Peter and Judas knew they had sinned. That's, so have we. But Peter alone knew that his only hope was to fall on his face before God and say, Have mercy on me, the sinner. Guess what he found? A God who never, ever rejects anyone who does that. May every single one of us be that kind of people, I pray. And so may you, we leave with the words of the great friend of Jesus by the name of John the Baptist, who when he first laid eyes on Jesus in his public ministry, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May you go with those words in your mind. Amen.